Welcome to Connecting the Dots, a beautiful Tuesday morning here in Tucson, and uh, I'm very honored to have our guest today, uh, Michael Cutler. Uh, Mike is a former uh, INS special agent. He was a senior special agent. He worked with uh, DEA and any number of the federal uh, law enforcement agencies as a special agent for the New York INS and uh, Mike has uh, had an amazing bunch of experience in the immigration issues and he's going to tell us today about uh, our borders because as I alluded to before they started the program he has brought to my attention how many borders we actually have and believe me you have no idea how many borders we have, because when we start adding county jurisdictions, city jurisdictions, uh, state borders, all these uh, different entities have borders. And the group of people who are trying to drive us into uh, globalism and technocracy and all the crappy things they're trying to push, they want to eliminate all borders because they want to eliminate all property. And uh, believe me, this is a really, really bad idea. And we're going to learn why today with my special guest, uh, Michael Cutler. Uh, Mike, welcome to the program. It's always such a great pleasure, my friend, to talk to you. And uh, Thank you, Dan. I'm, I know from our conversation uh, just the other day that we're going to have quite a discussion today. Well, no. we are. I, I don't really look at county borders and, and that sort of thing. But what I focus on is the fact that we have 50 border states. And people are using that concept now because illegal aliens flowing across the Mexican border are being dispersed across America. But that doesn't make every state a border state from that perspective. In, in my view, every state is a border state because every state provides access to the United States of America by both people and cargo coming from outside the United States of America. And then most people are being told by the politicians from both corrupt political parties and the media, focus on the southern border. Well, the southern border is a huge issue. I don't want to minimize how dangerous the southern border is. If you go into open record 
testimony. We know that Hezbollah, which is an Iranian-backed terrorist organization, is working in close coordination with human traffickers and drug smugglers to move record quantities of narcotics into the United States, to move people into the United States, including undoubtedly sleeper agents. So we know that the Mexican border is dangerous, but that's not the only way that people and cargo enter the United States. We have the northern border. And in fact, the Justice Department just issued a press release yesterday about cross-border crime along the northern border. Yet you're not hearing anything about the northern border in the mainstream media or even the so-called conservative programming. Although uh, I was on Newsmax a couple days ago, and unlike many other networks, they don't pre-interview me to figure out am I going to say what they want to hear. They simply say to me, Mr. Cutler, we'd like you to come on the program. This is the topic. Are you interested? I say yes, and we go from there. <laughs> Pardon me, and the point that I made is that we have a northern border. We also have 95,000 miles of coastline. So altogether, the United States has more than 100,000 miles of coastline, not just the 2,000 miles of U.S.-Mexican border. Yet, Every th time we hear about immigration, mostly what we hear about is the need for more Border Patrol agents. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of the U.S. Border Patrol. When I hired on with the old INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, we were trained at the Border Patrol Academy in Los Fresnos, Texas, right across the Rio Grande from Brownsville, which is now a hotspot for drug trafficking. It's, it's become a nightmare. <clears throat> but... Everyone ignores and neglects, and I believe it's done intentionally, the mission of interior enforcement. And in fact, that's the job I did for 26 years. And for four years prior to becoming a special agent for the INS, I was an immigration inspector assigned to John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York. And that brings us to the other places where we find access to the United States. We have over 110 international airports scattered across America. And if you look at the 9-11 Commission, and I provided testimony to the Commission, because as an immigration agent, I investigated and arrested international terrorists, including one who was suspected of being involved with the Irish Republican Army way back when. I took a fire off of him. We worked that case jointly with the FBI, but I was the assigned case agent. Um, I've arrested terrorists um, from the Middle East and elsewhere, Latin America. Terrorism is a worldwide problem. People thinking that violence is the solution to a political uh, wrong that they perceive. Violence is never the solution, period, full stop. I don't care what your belief is. Going out and hurting people is not the way we resolve things successfully. Nobody wins in a war, okay? We have yeah. to fight wars to defend ourselves, but you'd be hard-pressed to say that when we won the Second World War, there wasn't a downside. When you look at all the soldiers who came back uh, either grievously injured or came back in body uh, bags. So we want to avoid violence. We want to work things out peacefully. We need to keep open channels of communication. Uh, and that brings me to a point that's off topic, but I, I just want to make this point because I want your audience to understand something. I'm a lifelong registered Democrat. Don't get excited. I am. But the Democrat Party is no longer the Democrat Party. Yeah. Let's be very clear about it. My philosophies would run parallel to Harry Truman, to Scoop Henry Jackson, um, to John F. Kennedy. OK, that's the old Democrat Party. 
the new Democrat Party is not liberal. I, I love the way, oh, these people are liberals. There's nothing liberal about people no. who want cancel culture. Let's be very clear. They're Marxists. There's no two ways. Well, they're totalitarians, mm -hmm. and they want to shut down speech. They are fascists. You know, there was an interesting interview, and it'll be on until Friday. If you check out Bill Maher, he had Elon Musk on with him for the first half of the program. And it was really interesting to me because Musk made the same points that I've been making on my own. Uh, you know, I do a, a blog talk radio show, Friday nights, the Michael Cutler Hour, and in my writings for Front Page Magazine, I keep hammering the point that the Democrat Party is not the party of liberals. I was raised to be a liberal. I raised my kids to be liberals. What's a liberal? A liberal celebrates the First Amendment. As Americans, we have an absolute right to our opinions. We don't have to agree with each other, but everyone is entitled to an opinion. Everyone under the First Amendment, unless they're calling for violence or yelling fire in a crowded theater, to use the old example, everyone has an absolute right to speak his or her mind freely without fear. That is not what we're witnessing under the lunatics of the radical left. Look at the violence on campuses. Look at Antifa the desire to shut down debate, to shut down discussion, to stop people from asking questions, do as you're told, shut up, don't disagree with us, or else we're coming for you. That is not the First Amendment. That is not liberal, and that's not what the Democrat Party used to stand for. Right. So I think it's really important that we understand that. What we are witnessing is a desire by a radical element that has taken control of the Democrat Party to destroy the First Amendment and all the other amendments of the Constitution. This is a desire to cultivate a one-party system through the destruction of the American middle class and the economic system. Think about that. Well, well and, and Michael, I, I, well, I, I, um, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I will add to that. Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, Republican Party, the Democrat Party, you're right, we've got a uniparty because they're uh, both hogs uh, eating out of the same trough. There's a little yep. bit different spin to the way they look at things. I think yes. I, when I sent my newsletter out, I, uh, I mentioned the fact that I equate the Republicans to fascists, the uh, the, uh, certainly the uh, uh, so-called establishment Republicans. Uh, I equate them to fascists because they're national socialists. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the Democrat Party, which now has turned into the Marxist Party because they're international socialists. And uh, frankly, uh, everything in between is getting pushed out because they're all globalists and they all want a one world technocratic government, yep. uh, whether they want to admit it or not. And the best way to do that is destroy any sense of national sovereignty and get rid of every sense of a border. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because a few years ago, you know, I was going to be an engineer originally. Things don't always go as we plan. But I still like to bring the engineer perspective, how do we fix things? In fact, two of my kids became engineers, very successful mechanical engineers. Um, you know, life doesn't always go our way, but I did take a degree in communications, arts, and sciences, and I really pay attention to words. And about five or six years ago, a word crept into the vernacular, and the word was disruptive. 
Think about it. We were told that these new companies were disrupting the industry. They were disrupting business as though this is a good thing. I remember when I went to school, if a teacher said you were disruptive, your parents got a phone call and they weren't very happy with the conversation. And suddenly we were being told that being disruptive is good. Well, it was really, I think, a harbinger of what we're witnessing, the disruption of all sorts of systems within the United States, whether it's healthcare, whether it's the, the following to the Constitution, disrupting the immigration system. And, and let me be very clear, because I hear this all the time. Oh, you're anti-immigrant. No, in point of fact, I'm pro-immigrant, but our immigration laws have nothing to do with race or religion or ethnicity. If they did, I got to tell you, I couldn't have enforced those laws for 30 seconds, let alone 30 years. The immigration laws fundamentally are designed to protect public health, public safety, national security, and the jobs and wages of American workers, period. And the lunatic left and the open borders crowd on the other side will sometimes talk about, well, we had Chinese exclusion laws and we had all these other terrible things. And we did. And we also had slavery in America and around the world. But times have changed. The laws have changed. And if you go to Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, and I'll read it, I'll repeat it again, Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, and I frequently include links to statutory authority, authority uh, in my articles uh, for front page so that you can easily find the reference material. If I can't prove it, I'm not going to say it. It's very simple. I'm not going to come on a program and waste your time by spewing nonsense. Um, so that law tells you who we are supposed to keep out of the United States. Again, not a word about race, not a word about religion, not a word about ethnicity. It's about aliens who have dangerous communicable diseases. Ellis Island was a quarantine station. Think what we've been going through with COVID. And again, Title 42 appears to be on the chopping block. Aliens who suffer from severe mental illness and pose a safety threat to public safety. Aliens who are criminals, terrorists, spies, human rights violators, war criminals, fugitives from justice, aliens who are human traffickers, drug smugglers. And we get down to aliens who, if they work, would displace Americans or would become public charges, meaning we would have to pay for their upkeep, uh, even though they're people who are only here because we invited them in. They're, they're temporarily here. And what we saw happening with language, starting with Jimmy Carter back in the late 70s, Carter um, came up with an edict that immigration agents and immigration employees will no longer use the word alien. Look at how it's been expunged from the conversation. The term alien is not an insult. It simply means any person, not a citizen or national of the United States. There's no insult. <clears throat> it's like saying, Dan, you're my friend, but you're not a relative because we're not from the same family. That's not an insult. That's mm -hmm. a statement of reality. In every other country, has similar language, alien versus citizen, okay? Mm -hmm. As an inspector at the airport, I was not permitted under any circumstances to deny an American citizen entry into the United States. Once I became convinced that the person standing in front of me at that booth at the airport was an American citizen, in fact, we no longer inspected them, but we examined their documents because their admission was a foregone conclusion. Now, we may have held them for other law enforcement agencies, 
We had folks coming into the United States wanted by the FBI or DEA or maybe New York City police because he was a suspect at a homicide. So we would hold them for the other law enforcement agency. But we could not deny them entry into the country any more than I could lock my children out of my house. However, aliens had to prove to the satisfaction of the inspector at that port of entry that they did not belong to one or more categories of exclusion that I just enumerated. The point is that as a country, as a sovereign country, you have the right, in fact, the imperative, to determine who you let in and who you keep out. And only a fool would let somebody in who wants to do harm to you. That's why that list on Title VIII, United States Code, Section 1182, is so darn important. And security begins at your front door, right? We don't let people in unless we want to. The only exception is if law enforcement comes with a warrant, they can then force their way in. Short of that, you have an absolute right to hear a person knock on the door, look out the window and say, you know, I don't like the looks of this guy. Or I'm going to take a hot shower. I can't be bothered right now and not open the door. That's how countries operate. Now, when I was testifying, and I've been before something like 17 hearings in the House and Senate, I got into an argument during a recess and a hearing because the members of Congress had to go vote. And when they have to go vote, the lights flash and a bell rings and they go vote on bills and measures and so forth. So we were in the middle of a hearing. It was about border security. <clears throat> One of the other witnesses was a uh, an individual affiliated with an organization connected to the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I call them the U.S. Chamber of Horrors. And he came up to me and he said, you know, Mr. Cutler, this business about border security, he said, you got to stop this nonsense. And this was a couple of years after 9-11. And I said, stop what nonsense? Our borders are our first and last line of defense. They keep out criminals. They keep out drugs. They keep out terrorists. I said, what's the problem? He said, you know what that border is to me and my friends? An impediment to our wealth. And he said this concern about terrorism, he said, get over it. It's inevitable that people die. I kid you not. I can't begin to tell you how angry I was. (laughs) I'm surprised that you didn't help dispatch him right at that point. Well, it was close. (laughs) The thought flashed through my head. But I did say to him, I said, you know, I have a prayer for you. He said, what's that? I said, I pray that if, God forbid, there is another attack, that the terrorists don't hurt a hair on your head. He said, you're very kind. I said, the hell I am. I want you to survive so that you could see within inches of your ugly mug, your family get vaporized. (laughs) I want you to inhale the fumes from their burning bodies. I said, because that's what happened in New York, my hometown. My neighbors died on 9-11. The ashes from 9-11, including their remains, fluttered down on me and my family and my home and my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And you're telling me that people die? Are you serious? If a country can't provide for the safety of its citizens, it fails, period, full stop. I don't care what fancy sneakers or cars or whatever you buy your children. If you don't provide a safe, wholesome, and healthy environment for them, you fail as a parent. Countries similarly have a similar responsibility to their citizens to keep them safe, and safety begins with our borders and our immigration system. Then he looked at me and said, would you like to step outside? I said, absolutely. Then he quickly shut up, sat down, and that was the last I heard out of him. (laughs) 
But I, I want you to understand what we're dealing with. Because if you look at what the 9-11 Commission had to say, there was a report, and I'm going to quote from this report. <clears throat> this was a companion document to the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel, and it was authored by the federal agents and the attorneys who were assigned to the 9-11 Commission. It was printed by the government printing office. So this wasn't a supermarket tabloid. This is an official report printed and published by the government of the United States. The preface of that report, again, it's a 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. This is how the preface begins. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they are unable to enter the country. Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining a U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. We believe for reasons we discussed in the following pages that it must be made one. You have to ask yourself, who in the world was running those agencies that they couldn't figure out something as simple as that? You know, I, I work with the Speakers Bureau in D.C., and frequently um, the audience consists of either members of the intelligence community or the armed forces, very often the Air Force, uh, frequently generals, colonels, uh, test pilots. Uh, a couple of years ago when I spoke, I was amazed and honored that one of the people in attendance had just come back from the space station, one of our astronauts. So we took photos together, a big fan of the astronaut corps. Um, I met Gene Krantz, Jim Lovell, Dave Scott, Jim McDivitt. I have photograph with with uh, with Gene Krantz. And as a kid, I got letters from Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom. And in fact, uh, for my birthday this year, a couple of my kids got together and bought me a photograph of um, the three flight controllers who brought um, Apollo 13 home after the explosion. And it was autographed by the three flight controllers. It's all certified wow. and everything. So it hangs on my office. Those were my heroes growing up. Okay. And so the point that I've made to the military, and people don't seem to get this, the common shared mission of the U.S. armed forces, and I don't care what branch we're talking about, they have a shared mission. It's to keep the enemies of America as far from our shores as possible. I think we'd all agree. Well, guess who gets that baton up close and in person? It's the U.S. Border Patrol and ICE. That's how significant this is. <clears throat> and I remember that at, at several of these events where I spoke, I had generals come up to me and say, you know, Mr. Cutler, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I never thought of immigration from that perspective, but you're 100% right. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it from that angle, how in the world can they make the statement that no one thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal? And, 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 and it gets worse because no one is thinking about the fact that what the Biden administration has done is to flood America with millions of people whose identities are unknown and unknowable. There's been a report issued about the vetting process, which leaves a lot to be desired. And we have no idea who's here. Now, I, I want to put that in perspective. Or how many, or how many. Or how many, but let's put that in perspective. All it took was 19 hijackers on 9-11 to kill more people than we lost to the Japanese fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. And the death count continues to this day as more people 
mostly first responders, but not only first responders, are succumbing to illness that was a direct result of the exposure to the toxins when the towers collapsed. They've allocated billions of dollars, billions, to treat these people who are dying terribly. They're suffering, they're in pain, they have cancer, they have all kinds of debilitating illness because of the terror attack. And so nobody wants to even bring up the 9-11 Commission. And it used to be that the Democrats and Republicans stood shoulder to shoulder after 9-11. Believe it or not, I actually testified twice for Sheila Jackson Lee. I don't know if the people in the audience remember, but it was discovered to everyone's shock six months to the day after 9-11, the two of the dead terrorists, Mohammed Atta and Marwan al-Shehi, and Atta was the ringleader, they were in the cockpits of the two planes that slammed into the two towers of the World Trade Center. They had been granted authorization to attend flight school six months after the attacks. So by then, the world knew two things about them. They were dead and they were terrorists. And no one could believe it. And it was Sheila Jackson Lee, who at the time was the ranking member, because the Republicans had control of the Congress the House. So the Democrats were the minority party, so to speak. They reached out to me and said, would you be willing to come to Washington? Because I hadn't even heard about it. Their, their counsel told me this. And I almost fell over. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, no. And I just had an argument with, with the, that imbecile, Anthony Weiner, who used to be my congressman. And I, just, I was on my way home from a meeting. Uh, and Weiner was in attendance. And I said, my gosh, you've got to be kidding. So I went and testified. And you can watch the hearing uh, on C-SPAN. It's part of their permanent collection, the hearing about how two dead terrorists got permission to go to flight school. And everybody was on the same page. And it was, in fact, when George W. Bush created the Department of Homeland Security, he violated the Homeland Security Act, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Immigration was never supposed to be cut into little pieces the way he did it. In fact, unofficially, I had worked with members of Congress because I did my first hearing back on May 20th, 1997, on the issue of immigration fraud and visa fraud because of the 93 attacks, both at the CIA and the first World Trade Center bombing, all involved aliens from the Middle East who committed fraud by lying about their identities, their backgrounds, their affiliation with terrorist groups, and so forth. So they held this hearing to look at the dangers we face because of people lying on applications. And if you look at that statement about how the aliens got visas to enter the country, they didn't talk about running the Mexican border. Again, that is a serious problem. But here they were talking about the visa process was not doing the job of keeping the bad guys out. When was the last time, Dan, you heard anybody on t TV talk about the visa process or the way we were giving lawful status to aliens. If you look at Mayorkas, the head of Homeland Security, he was running Citizenship and Immigration Services for the Obama administration. No one ever talks about Citizenship and Immigration Services. Now, remember, I was an adjudicator for a year, and that's where the adjudicators work. They make the decisions about political asylum, issuing green cards, even U.S. citizenship to aliens. They are the locksmiths of the United States. Think about that. Mm -hmm. When we think about the border wall, immediately people say, well, if you build a 12-foot wall, they'll come with a 20-foot ladder. All they need is a green card. If you have a green card, you walk through a port of entry and you're warmly embraced and you're told, welcome home. That's, right. <clears throat> That's how significant that process is. But nobody wants to talk about it. Everyone says, well, we're going to talk about illegal immigration. 
we need to talk about both the legal and illegal aspects of immigration enforcement, <clears throat> because both sides of the equation are failing us. And when Bush created DHS, number one, we were not supposed to divide Customs and Border Protection from Interior Enforcement, ICE. They weren't supposed to fold other agencies in. Okay, mm -hmm. think about that. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to simply be immigration law enforcement that would cover the borders and cover interior enforcement. That was one of the recommendations I made when I testified about six weeks after 9-11. I, I testified before the um, Select Committee on Homeland Security at the time it was chaired by Tom Tancredo. The INS was nice enough to remove me as an agent the morning after the hearing, ostensibly because I had injured my leg executing warrants with the FBI and the New York City Police Department. Then I said, look, I'd love to come back on duty. Maybe I can't chase people, but I injured my knee. I didn't injure my brain. I didn't injure my hands or my eyes. My right knee is messed up. What's the big deal? They wanted me out because they knew that I was going to tell the truth. And, you know, in government, very often the truth will set you free, free to seek <laughs> employment. We see that yeah. pattern all the time. But the point was immigration was supposed to involve, and I called it the enforcement tripod. The inspectors enforce the laws at ports of entry. I'm very familiar with that job. The Border Patrol enforces the laws between ports of entry. But it's the special agents of interior that back them up with that third leg of the tripod. And we've never had meaningful interior enforcement. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why they want to have only Border Patrol. Border Patrol is a, an important mission, but it's a very single mission, singular mission. It's about preventing interdiction, make sure that people don't sneak into the country without inspection. That's why when people were screaming about the border wall is terrible, it's a wall of hate. No, it's not. The border wall was never designed to stop anybody from entering the United States. Think about that. Yeah. The just border wall through was the not door. <laughs> Right. It's supposed to block the spaces between ports of entry. Mm -hmm. Is it anti-fan to require when you go to a baseball game or a football game that you go through a gate? That's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You go to the baseball park and you buy a ticket, you go through a gate, maybe you go through a metal detector and you take your seat in the stands and everybody has a great day, right? You don't mm -hmm. traipse across the field. When you go to the airport, <clears throat> you go through TSA. Why? To keep off people that might pose a threat to airline safety and make certain they don't bring weapons on board the airplane. The inspections process that we do at ports of entry is very similar. And again, I did that job for four years. I'm intimately familiar with it. It's about keeping out aliens who pose a threat to public health, public safety, national security, and the jobs and wages of Americans. What's wrong with that? OK, so when Bush put everything together, he added customs, he added agriculture, he added the sky marshals, he added Secret Service, he added H it was a conglomeration of all sorts of agencies. And then he divided ICE from CBP, which further complicated the entire mission. And in fact, John Hostetler, who was terrific, he was the Republican chairman of the House Immigration Subcommittee. I think I did something like seven or eight hearings for John. Then he made the point that what Bush did gave us immigration incoherence, making it impossible to secure our borders or enforce our immigration laws. And therefore, we could not protect the American people. And in fact, the people that Bush put in charge of the component agencies of ICE and CBP had very little experience with immigration law enforcement. 
This was by design because he is a globalist. I was told that every time I testified before Congress, good old George W. would scream obscenities. I wish I had a video of it. I would find it entertaining. The, mm-hmm. the problem is both parties are into this globalist bug. And mm-hmm. understand something. Campaign contributions are bribes, okay? I'm enjoying my cup of coffee. I see you are. When I was <laughs> on duty, I could not have accepted a cup of coffee. I know. I know. Right? And you have the politicians, and all we hear about is how serious a candidate they are for whatever position based on what? How much money is in their war chest? How many bribes they've been able to accumulate? Mm-hmm. And it was Which they get to keep tax free uh, after they're out of office. They get to keep those bribes tax free. Yeah, it's, ama- it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, unbelievable. And, and and so you look at what we're really dealing with. The the system is corrupt from square one. And, and, and I have issues with Bernie Sanders, but interestingly, he used to be one of the strongest proponents for border enforcement. Why? Because he said it was the Koch brothers' scam to flood America with foreign workers, because once you do that, you destroy jobs and wages for American workers. And it's wrong. And I agree with him on that issue. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's now changed his tune drastically. But the interesting thing was that he was on Bill Maher. And Bill Maher said the Democrat Party used to be seen as the party of the average working American. And it was. My dad was a construction worker. He and his buddies were all registered Democrats here in New York. My mom was a registered Democrat. He said, what happened to the Democrat Party? He said, well, Citizens United happened. And I've made this point frequently. When the Supreme Court decided Citizens United, what it meant was that unlimited amounts of money could be pumped into political campaigns. Mm-hmm. So now we need a new cabinet-level position, Dan. I'm advocating that they create the position of the official auctioneer. Okay? <laughs> how, do, how does that work? I like the guy at Beacom Auto Auction. I think he's pretty good. But the guy on, on those other shows is pretty good, too. But Barrett Jackson, I just like his good. style. Yeah, Barrett Jackson would be good. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Barrett Jackson. They're, they're good, too. I, I don't want to, you know, pick on one over the other. But maybe one of those guys can, you know, get themselves a job at some point working for the government as the official auctioneer. I, I mean, this is insanity. This is absolute insanity. And so what we really now have is an employer-employee relationship between the politicians and these special interest groups. Think about it. That's right. They're all owned by special interests. Yeah, because the idea of your boss, if you have a boss, you do your job the way he or she tells you to if you want your paycheck. If you don't do the job adequately, they fire you. In order to run for office, the politicians need money. In order to get the money, they have to do what they're told to do by the people that write the big checks. This is like a magic act, okay? We've all seen the magic act, the magician who promises to cut his lovely assistant in half. Now, we all know if he really does it, he's going to go to jail. No one's ever going to work with him again, right? So Mm -hmm. he creates an elaborate illusion of cutting this poor young lady in half. And at the end of the act, she jumps up on stage and you find out to everyone's relief that they didn't hurt a hair on her head and everybody claps. Yay, we are entertained. The politicians know that the average American want our borders to be secured against criminals and terrorists and so forth. That's common sense. This isn't radical. It's not crazy. It's not unreasonable. Be careful. Don't let in people who want to hurt us. That's fine. But they know if they really do that, the people that write the checks, their actual employers will stop writing the checks. So what do they do? 
Just like the magician, they create an elaborate illusion of doing what their constituents want because they need their votes, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they convince them that they're going to do what they want while they make damn sure that nothing is ever done that changes the equation because immigration is a delivery system now, not a law enforcement system, but a delivery system. And what it delivers is an unlimited supply of cheap, exploitable labor. And by the way, it's not just the illegal aliens, it's the high-tech visas. And I'm going to read something from Alan Greenspan shortly, and you'll see just how nasty and disgusting this whole business is. It delivers an unlimited supply of clients for immigration law firms. And you could find immigration lawyers on both parties. Bob Goodlatte, who was the Republican chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, which oversees the FBI and DEA and the U.S. Marshals and the court system, also oversees immigration. Bob Goodlatte was an immigration or is an immigration lawyer. And I had a big argument with Goodlatte when he was the chairman. We had a private meeting that was arranged. That I said to him, you keep pushing these H-1B high-tech visas. I said, you know, tragically, my first wife died of cancer over 30 years ago, but she was a brilliant programmer. She had her MBA in computer science. She was a Phi Beta Kappa graduate, member of the National Math Honor Society. And many of her colleagues, and quite a few were women, by the way, that were starting to get into that industry at that point. It's kind of like that movie, The Hidden Figures, right, about the space program. Uh, they were They were doing a great job. They were experienced, they were knowledgeable, they were brilliant, they were productive. And I said, so now they're being made to compete with foreign workers. Why? You're destroying an industry, and with it, you're destroying an important element of our economy. Then he said to me, you don't understand, Mr. Cutler. My son knows something about computers, and he would love to see thousands upon thousands and even more thousands of brilliant Indian programmers come to America. Now, I knew nothing about his son at that point, but he had a big mouth and wasn't thinking much, which is typical, I guess, for politicians. And so I, I was astonished. I said, why would you be concerned about bringing Indian programmers to America when you're the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee that I would imagine should be focused on what's in the best interests of the average American? In fact, that's the question I'd love to see every politician and every official on every level of government, from dog catcher to president. Here's the question. How are your policies in the best interests of the average American citizen, period, full stop? See, I don't believe in America first anymore, because America first means American corporations first. Right? Yeah. Like the banks that we bail out and GM that we bailed out. And they, mm -hmm. they show gratitude by building factories in China. God bless them. Right. Or Brazil. Yeah. Or Brazil or wherever mm -hmm. or Mexico. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So what I believe in is Americans first. Mm -hmm. You see, Let, let's add that N apostrophe. American. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Does that. Does that work? Sure. So we're clear. If Lincoln talked about a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, he wasn't talking about CEOs and CFOs. He was talking about we, the people, Americans first. That's what Mike Cutler believes in. I hope you do too, folks. I hope oh, I make yeah. sense to you. Oh, so yeah. what you're witnessing are corporations you know, playing the music that these politicians have to dance to. Trump, by the way, and I didn't always agree with Donald Trump. I don't agree with anybody 100% of the time. Ed Koch, I thought, was a great mayor. 
<laughs> and I love the guy. I thought he was the best mayor of, of my lifetime in New York City. But he said, if you agree with me 70% of the time, vote for me. If you agree with me 95% of the time, get psychiatric treatment. So, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, you know, we have to be able to have discussions and learn how, again, to have debates. I was going to teach debate on the college level. My degree was in communications, arts and sciences. I call it my B.A. and B.S. But debate is intellectual capitalism. We all bring our ideas to the marketplace of the debate. And then we try to convince the consumer, the people who judge the debate and the audience, that our ideas are better than our opponent's ideas. We do that in the marketplace with cars and toaster ovens mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, you know, fried chicken. Well, why not do it with our ideas? Because that's what debate is. It's an exchange of ideas that is consistent with the First Amendment and the notion of freedom of speech and with it, freedom of thought. Read 1984 yeah. if you want to see what's really happening to America. Mike, so, and, and, and what you're saying is exactly what made America the greatest country in world history. Mm -hmm. It was the freedom <clears throat> to have those discussions, yep. and it was the genius of allowing people to use their resources to the best of their ability. Absolutely. And, you know, I owe America my life, the life of my children and my, my wonderful grandchildren, because my mom came here ahead of the Holocaust. We're Jewish. Her mother could not get out of Poland, so she was killed by the Nazi bastards. I was named for my mother's mother, my grandmother, because she died in Poland. But my mom came here as a 13-year-old legally, lived by herself in a rooming house, right? supported herself at the age of 13 by working in a sweatshop making umbrellas for $3 a week and was wow. still trying to send a few pennies back to her mom in Poland when her mother wrote to her and said, don't put any money in the envelopes. They're stealing the money at the post office. Mm. By the time my mother was in her early 20s or mid-20s during the Depression, she only had a fourth-grade education but became the chief buyer for a dress company during the Depression that was so successful that her boss became one of Roosevelt's dollar-a-year men who was invited to the White House routinely and regularly to confer with the president on getting America out of the Depression. And he frequently pointed to my mother, only in her 20s with that fourth-grade education as the reason he was so successful, proving something that we all know. There is a world of difference between being intelligent and being educated. That's right. In academia, the two most dangerous words, you know what they are? In theory. <laughs> in theory. Because in theory, you should be able to jump out your windows and flap your arms vigorously and fly away, in theory. See what happens in reality. And so, <laughs> am I right or wrong? I love it. So, you have kids that are looking to make a difference, which is a good thing. They want to be inspired, and they're being inspired by people who manipulate them. They're using their lack of experience and their naivete to turn them into a force for evil in America today. I really believe that. It's Absolutely. Very, very worrying. has turned into a propaganda arm yes. of Marxism. Absolutely. Yes. And, and you have corporations pulling the same nonsense. Mm -hmm. It's all about profit. Now, look, I'm a capitalist. I believe in profit. Mm -hmm. And I think competition is when we do our best. Tragically, the greatest technological advances seem to happen when? 
during a time of war, the ultimate competition, right? You're fighting for your life. You know, you pull out all the stops. What do we have to do to win? Because if we don't win, we're dead. There's no winner in second place, right? So progress, whether it's medicine, whether it's technology, whether it's aviation, during armed conflict, we have the greatest progress. Capitalism is all about competition, right? It's economic Darwinism. And I agree with making the better mousetrap, which we don't even hear about anymore. So the idea is use your creativity to make progress, real progress. What we're really seeing with corporations today, it's all about the bottom line. There was a very interesting article in the New York Times many years ago, and it was about how the advent of the professional manager was going to destroy capitalism in the United States. It was a very interesting article. And they said in the old days, people who started companies were really into whatever it is they were doing. Howard Hughes was into airplanes, right? Instead of skin, he almost had feathers. The guy was all about airplanes. And all of a sudden, you saw these people that would float from one industry to another industry to another industry, moving up the ladder. Each time, what were they asked? Red ink or black ink? Did you turn a profit or didn't you? How much profit? And that's how the decisions were made as to who they were going to hire for each industry. So some guy is running, let's say, a company that makes guns right? The, the Acme gun company. And he knows the assembly line is breaking down and the materials aren't being manufactured the right way. But if he redoes the assembly line, it's going to cost X amount of money. And he says, gee whiz, I'm planning to leave here to go work for the phone company. And if I don't show a profit, they're not going to hire me. So I'm not going to invest money in improving the assembly line because it's going to take 10 years for it to pay off, and I need to show a profit for the next two years. So they run their companies into the ground. They make decisions about moving manufacturing out of the United States. There's nothing about morality, nothing about reasonableness. Uh, In the 50s, the average CEO made about 50 times what the guy on the production floor made. Today, the CEOs are making 600 times, and they're still not happy with it. Mm -hmm. And so this is money that, number one, should go to the people who work there. This is money that should go to the people that buy stock in the company, right? Their dividends. And this is money that should be reinvested in the company to make it more effective and efficient and and productive. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, companies are being looted by their own CEOs. Am I right or wrong in what I'm saying? You're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, I I, uh, was a small businessman most of my life. And I, I was a commercial building contractor. Um, I can honestly say there was never a time when uh, I my best paid employees made any less than half of what I made. Yeah, and my dad was a construction worker. And you know when I when I was uh, in front of these generals, I, I asked them. I said, "Who do you credit with the amazing success of D Day?" Was it the brilliant generals? Eisenhower is one of my all time favorites. Was it the generals? Or was it the soldiers who laid down their lives or came home grievously wounded? And I said, I would argue that it was a shared credit. Without the brilliance of the generals, Eisenhower and so forth, D-Day wouldn't have succeeded. But without the dedicated soldiers charging onto the beaches, D-Day wouldn't have succeeded either. 
Mm-hmm. Corporations certainly are run by the people that start them and pump their their heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears and hard earned money into the company. And they're entitled to make a return on it. I have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. That's that's, right. that's what motivates people in the morning. <clears throat> but but those people that come in every morning and punch that time clock and go get the job done, could your company have succeeded without them? Certainly not. This is a team effort. We're not enemies. This this isn't supposed to be a battle line. But when you have people like Jack Welsh, who came out with the 10% rule and other these other yo-yos had to follow the Welsh rule, uh, when I tell people about it, if they're not familiar with it, they freak out. Jack mm-hmm. Welsh said, and, and he was on TV shows hawking his book and his nonsense, oh, yeah. right? And what I've did he seen say? many times. Yep. yep, right? And he said, you promote the top 10% performers and you fire the bottom 10%. Every year you do a tough evaluation and you either promote or fire. Well, wait a minute. What are you doing? Who's going to cooperate with a fellow employee at that company if they know, excuse me, if that guy now does a better job, he may get the promotion that this guy has been hoping for, or he may even lose his job because this guy will do so much better than him. So you're turning what should be a collaborative effort in a major corporation into a, a fierce battle of a, or a game of survivor. Who's going to cooperate when the guy sitting next to you is now your enemy? And that's not the way we should be treating one another. There's got to be a level of compassion that we have for each other. You know, my dad used to say, live and let live. If, he said to me, Mike, if, if you have a roof over your head, a couple of nice suits hanging in the closet, a car in the driveway with a tank of gas and a full refrigerator. He said, you know what time it is? I said, no, Dad, what time is it? He said, it's time to knock on your neighbor's door and see if they need some help. Mm-hmm. And that's how I was raised. That's the way and, I was raised, too. And yep. it, it's so tragic because we have seen corporate greed on a scale that I didn't think was possible, something that they call cost out. They hire engineers out of school and have them sit at workbenches and figure out how to make widgets for two-tenths of a penny less because they sell 18 million widgets every year. And think of how much money we'll have if each widget costs two-tenths of a cent less to manufacture. So instead of saying the products that we make represent who we are, it's our reputation on the line, the only thing they care about is the bottom line. So we move companies overseas. You now have companies using slave labor children that are being smuggled into this country by the Biden administration policies. I I, I really don't know how some of these people sleep at night. Um, I lost my parents to cancer when I was in college within a year of each other, which is why my ability to study kind of went out the window. And I'll be honest, I still have nightmares. You know, one of my favorite bumper stickers says, be kind to the people you meet. You don't know the battles they're fighting, which is true. Mm-hmm. My dad used to say, if you can hang your problems on a clothesline and then walk by all your neighbors and look at their clotheslines, you'd probably come back for your problems because we all have we all have problems. And, and he said, so we, we need to try to be helpful to each other. Life is supposed mm-hmm. to be a team sport. So I certainly think that people have every right to, to live their dream and build their companies and be successful. But remember the guy on the assembly line that's making your company work. You know, we should be looking at this as Americans first. I, come, I keep coming back to Americans first. My youngest son has autism. 
but because of early intervention and some incredible teachers and therapists, and he himself, I call him my mountain climber. He's one of my two engineer kids. In fact, he had a full scholarship to City College. Full scholarship. Think of that. Graduated with honors. Why? Because of the dedication of his teachers, the therapists. Um, and, you know, my wife and I certainly worked with him. And, I mean, as being a parent is the most important job you could ever have if you have children. Um, and it was his own dedication. But what are we doing now? Taking money that should be going to help American children with learning disabilities, to help give them the brightest, most successful, and happiest future, right? The pursuit of happiness. And what are we doing instead? Pumping that money into English as a second language. Charity begins at home. You can't bring the world's poor to America as a solution for poverty any more than I could go to a homeless shelter and bring 100 homeless people to my house and say, come on, folks, move in. We are a yeah, country I'm... of limited resources. And, I, and what I really see happening, Dan, <clears throat> I believe that, number one, the Republicans who have always been beholden to corporate America wanted cheap labor. But not only cheap labor, but they wanted to cheapen labor. Because if you bring in an army of third world workers, and you know Jeff Sessions was very good on this. I'm so sorry he had a falling out with uh, Donald Trump, President Trump. Uh, when I, I wrote an article in, 19, in 2006, I believe it was, about comprehensive immigration reform, I'd done a couple of hearings about it. And I said they should give it a new name. I recommended calling it the Terrorist Assistance and Facilitation Act. Because you're going to be giving lawful status to millions of people who snuck into the country to evade the vetting process. There's no capacity to interview them. There's no capacity to do field investigations to verify any of the information that they're giving you. And if they're undocumented, it means we have no way of proving who the hell they are. So mm -hmm. why in the world would you do that? Where is Again, we keep coming back to that fundamental question. Where's the benefit for the average American if we do this? You see? And I had compared the hearings where I had testified and others had testified with the countdown for the launch of space shuttle challenges. So the, the title for my article for the Washington Times was Immigration Bill, a no-go, referencing, you know, NASA saying, you know, the mission right. is no-go. And um, the point to the hearings was for the experts to weigh in as to whether they should go forward with the legislation, just like the countdown was the opportunity for the engineers and, and specialists to weigh in as to whether they should go forward with the launch. And when they launched against the advice of some of their best experts, we had a catastrophe. I said, now they better listen to the experts warning them about the dangers of comprehensive immigration reform. And Sessions quoted me from the floor of the U.S. Senate on three separate days, believe it or not, and then sent me a certificate. It's hanging on the wall behind me. It's one of the things I'm real <laughs> proud of, where he said that it was his belief that his ability to use my words during the floor debate persuaded enough of his colleagues to vote down dangerous legislation. Okay. And so this is about bringing in an army of foreign workers. And what happens if you bring in an army of third world workers is you turn America into a third world country, because right. now that becomes the new normal for wages and working conditions. So what I want to do- Well, and, and, and Michael, I, I couldn't agree with you more, but one of the things that has changed over the last 30, 40 years is the idea of assimilation into being Americans. We used to expect all immigrants 
to assimilate into yep. American culture. That's not not only not demanded anymore, we are demanded to assimilate into their crappy cultures or we're racists or bigots or whatever they want to yeah. label us. Well, and that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Well, you know, Americans are being played for fools and they're taking our compassion and using it as a weapon against us. Absolutely. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, tough growing up in Brooklyn. I was a scrawny kid. Uh, and my heroes had nothing to do with sports. I'll be honest with you. Um, my my favorite oxymoron is heroic play. I'm still trying to figure out how you can be a hero when you're playing. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my heroes were the astronauts and test pilots. I had prostate cancer 20 odd years ago. And to cheer me up, my wife bought me a poster signed by Buzz Aldrin and a model of the X1 autographed by Chuck Yeager, another one of my heroes. Mm. And it's on the bookcase that's behind me. It's on top of the bookcase, the, the, the X1. And I bought a model of the uh, P-51 Mustang that Jaeger also autographed. Those are my heroes. Mm -hmm. But when you're growing up, excuse me, and you don't conform, you can pay a price. And the fact was that I didn't give a darn who was going to hit number 60 or 61, Mantle, Maris. It wasn't going to change the world. What excited me with the Mercury astronauts, what excited me was Scott Crossfield, the aerospace engineer who first helped to design and fly the X-15. Um, I was actually supposed to have a meeting with, with the Crossfield, and he was killed in a plane crash, unfortunately. But the former curator mm -hmm. of the Air and Space Museum was trying to arrange for us to have lunch. Tragically, that never happened. But these were my heroes. Wow. But when you're when mm -hmm. you're a dummy and you and, and you don't think for yourself, I used to get beat up. Why? Cutler doesn't think sports is a big deal. There's something wrong with him. Sure thing. And I learned to stand on my own two feet. And my father said to me, you got a choice. <clears throat> Either keep your mouth shut or learn how to back up your mouth with your hands. Mm -hmm. So being a construction worker, he sent me off to a gym. I put on lots of weight, learned how to box, came back. In the fall, the following after the summer vacation, and one of the thugs came up, started in with me, and I decked him. And all it took was a couple of good fist fights, and the nonsense stopped, and it was a life lesson. And I hate bullies more than you could possibly imagine. I came home with torn shirts and a bloody nose, and my mom would cry because it hurt her to see me injured. And then she would say, my gosh, where am I going to get the money to replace the shirt? So it was a bad <laughs> situation. And so I learned that I had to take care of myself. And my dad said to me, he said, Mike, one morning you're going to wake up. He said, I, I hope it's not for a long time, but one morning you're going to wake up and I'm not going to be here. You better be ready for that day. And that day came when I was 19. I literally carried him off his job. Uh, he was dying of lung cancer in part because he smoked those awful Chesterfield blowtorches, but also because he worked in the Navy shipyards during the Second World War. And he was exposed to asbestos in the construction trades. And he was my hero. I mean, he worked with his last ounce of strength. I'll never forget taking him home halfway through a workday. It was pouring out. And he called me with a raspy voice and said, Mike, I can't do it anymore. Come get me. Mm -hmm. He cried. I cried. And the guys on the construction site cried. And when I hear this nonsense about the work Americans won't do, it should enrage every one of us. Mm -hmm. That is a thumb in our eye. Because my dad mm -hmm. wasn't unique in that. The guys he worked with, they didn't care how dirty or dangerous or backbreaking the job was. It was a day's pay. 
And I remember right. when I got sick, I said, Dad, you should stay home. You'll look lousy. And he said to me, looked me right in the eyes, says, Mike, are you going to pay the mortgage this month? You see? Mm -hmm. That's how I grew up to be who I am. My mom's experiences, my dad's experiences, they were my role models. I still stand on their shoulders. And when I hear this garbage about the work Americans won't do, are you serious? Some mm -hmm. of these people really need to get their heads realigned. And, and, and we, the people, need to stand up to these politicians. Alan Greenspan testified for Chuck Schumer about the illegal aliens and how they're a flexible workforce, and they only minimally suppress the wages of America's working poor. When you minimally suppress wages of the working poor, they become homeless. Okay, let's be real clear about this. But then he went on and talked about the high-tech workers. And, and I will tell you, I watched this hearing streaming live when it happened, April 30th, 2009. I was a regular on a radio show back then in, in Wisconsin, and, and Vicki was the gal who ran the program. And I was on the show the day after the hearing, and I said, you know, I watched Greenspan testify, and I knew I was witnessing a first. And Vicki said to me, you know, Mike, I, I've known you for a couple of years, and I know I'm standing on thin ice when I ask this, but I have to ask, what kind of a first was it? I said, well, it was the first time I'd ever seen someone testify who was suffering from rigor mortis. And she told me she spent the rest of her the rest of her show laughing so hard she had her mascara running down her cheeks. So let me read this to you. And if any of you take high blood pressure pills, I suggest you take it now and avoid the rush later, okay? Because this is so infuriating. I couldn't believe I was hearing him say this. So... He Go talked ahead. about the need to bring in H-1B visas as requested by Bill Gates. So the U.S. government is going to answer to Bill Gates. How cool is that? And it, That's talk what about I say. Michael, we've got fascism in the United States, yes. but it's fascism yes. in reverse. Mm -hmm. Because the corporations now are controlling government, not the other way around. That's right. That's exactly right. And And, and they were talking about how... Um, you know, a, a big percentage of America's high-tech workers are foreign workers. Yes, because they've been firing Americans. There was something put up by the Computer Guild where lawyers were having a conference and somebody covertly taped the conference. And there was a lawyer on stage telling the other lawyers in the audience, and they paid good money to be at this conference, I'm going to say, say something to you. I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, I'm going to say something to you that's going to sound a little strange. But your job is to make damn sure that no American gets qualified to do any of the jobs that we're talking about today. Now, why is wow. that? Because if Americans take the jobs, the immigration lawyers don't have any work. Mm -hmm. You see? So it's we don't your think interest. Like Americans, we don't think like Americans no, anymore. No, no, no. That's what everybody, I'm saying. There's no compassion for each other. Everybody thinks like a globalist. Everybody has yes. been convinced that we need that everybody ought to have exactly the equal footing, and that uh, our nationality doesn't matter anymore. No, that you, is so false. Yes. And, you know, by the way, when my, when my mom came here, her first order of business at the age of 13 was to learn English. When my dad's parents came from Russia, the first order of business was learn English. Mm -hmm. I was told that I'm quite a bit like my father's father. I never met him. You know, uh, as a Jew, you're named for people who die before you're born. So my middle name is for my dad's father, Willie. Mm -hmm. But I was told that I'm, I'm very much like him by people who knew him way back when. 
And he had been a Cossack in the Russian army. He was a boxer. He was a very scrappy character, and he was a no-nonsense guy. If you pissed him off, you paid for it. And in fact, just to, to show you how we've always had greed on a scale that's so unacceptable. I mean, it's about morality and ethics. One of his good friends owned a hardware store. And my father told me the story about his father going to his friend's hardware store. And this is back, I guess, in the 20s, 30s, 30s, I guess. And um, he's showing him this new car that he had bought, you know, in those days. And he said, you see that broom next to the counter? That broom paid for my car. And my grandfather said, how in the world does a broom pay for a car? He said, well, I keep it right next to the cash register. So when people come in, I charge them for the broom. Now, most of them don't notice it. But if they do, I say, oh, I thought you were buying it. And the guy would say, no, I don't need that broom. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll take that dollar off or whatever they charge for a broom in those days. He said, but so many people had no idea they were being charged for the broom that after a year or so, he got so much money off of that broom, it helped him to buy that new car. And my grandfather looked at him and he said, you're not my friend anymore. You're a crook. Yeah, and he walked no out kidding. of the store. But <laughs> do we not see the same nonsense being foisted on us today in so many ways? It's about morality and ethics. Mike, we're losing our country because of this. Yes. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. The whole thing is a scam now. Everything is a is scam. Is a scam. Yes. And it got to be that way because we lost our grounding. We lost our morality. We lost our understanding of what being a good American was all about. And being a good and person about is all fairness. about. And well, being that's a good right. person. It was, about, it was about fairness. It was about honesty. It was about integrity. integrity. And it was about love thy neighbor. Yep. You know, my dad didn't do repair work generally. He did construction. But if times were, were tough and, you know, the, the construction workers would get laid off, he could be out of work for three or four months and we'd be eating tuna fish sandwiches or, or noodles and cheese, you know. And by the way, I remember when they were rebuilding the Trade Center, one of my neighbors came to me and said, boy, you see that? Those workers working on the weekend, and it was the middle of the winter. It had to be five degrees outside. Those SOBs are out there making all that overtime. And I looked at him, and I said, what are you talking about? I said, construction is even more dangerous than law enforcement. It's five degrees outside. They're busting their butts building that building. And they're not with their families, and they're not sipping hot coffee. They're out there freezing their tails off. I said, I hope they're getting good money for it so they could you know, put it away for the day when they get laid off. Because as soon as the construction job is done, their job is done. But right. to this guy, it was, how much money are they making? I said, if you think it's such a good deal, why don't you go do it? Right? Exactly. You, you got to love these characters. But I, but I remember... My dad getting laid off and so forth. So he would do, you know, work for, for neighbors. And if he made a mistake or he ran into a problem where he had to spend more time or buy additional parts, if he shook hands with someone and said, this is what I'm going to charge you, he'd look at me, he'd shrug his shoulders. He says, boy, don't you love it when you get the job done and it costs you money? I said, Dad, can't you do something about it? He says, well, I'm not really sure because I gave my word. And he said, if my word doesn't count, then I don't count. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how I was raised. That's the way know? I was raised, too. 
And yes, and, and and by the way, it's like I had an argument with some folks. Oh my God, these people in the fast food places are making 15 bucks an hour. How much more are we going to pay them? I said, well, I know everyone thinks of it as a, as a beginning job for kids, but increasingly, because we keep firing American high-tech workers, I, in my travels, I've met a lot of middle-aged people at the window of the McDonald's or the Burger King or the Wendy's handing me my food. These are I've, met a lot of, I've met a lot of people our age working yep. there. Yeah. Yes. And and so, I, and by the way, a person who goes to work is giving up the most valuable resource and the most valuable asset they can possibly give. It's their time. Mm -hmm. If you're at work, you're not home playing with your puppy. You're not home painting. You're not home playing with your children or, or watching that movie or reading that book. You're giving up your time and it's irreplaceable. And I certainly am not a communist. I don't think that a neurosurgeon should get what a Burger King worker makes. Okay. Mm -hmm. But people who work on a job need to be treated with respect. They need to get a paycheck that enables them to support themselves. What we're witnessing now are people working for wages that they can't work, live on. So they then depend on the government for handouts, which is exactly right. what the Democrats want. Because and it's exactly how the system was designed, because yep. the more dependence they, the government has on mm -hmm. them, the more control they have over us. And that's what it's all about. The most control they can get. Well, you remember when you got an allowance, my mother would say to me, I don't want you buying comic books. Why? Well, she gave me my allowance. She could tell me what to do with the money. When I started taking odd jobs, when I was 14, 15 years old, she'd look at me and she'd say, well, I don't know if I like those comic books, but you work for that money. You can do with it as you wish. Mm -hmm. And that's what freedom is about, you see? Mm -hmm. So you have these quintessential control freaks. When I look at some of these people in Congress, you know, I, it makes me think of the kid that wanted to play hide and seek with his friends. So they would hide and uh, they would never look for them. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. So now you put them in a position of authority where they can push people around and they're making up for lost time. Right. Think about that. Mm -hmm. And it's a very dangerous situation. But I do want to read what Greenspan had to say. Yeah, because this is so do. infuriating. So this is why we need to do what Bill Gates wants and import an unlimited amount of H-1B visas. These are the visas for high-tech workers, programmers, scientists, engineers, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So here's what these are Greenspan's words. Don't kill the messenger. There's two benefits. First, skilled workers and their families form new households. They will, of necessity, move into vacant housing units, the current glut of which is depressing prices of American homes. And of course, house price declines are a major factor in mortgage foreclosures and the plunge in value of the vast quantity of U.S. mortgage-backed securities that has contributed substantially to the disabling of our banking system. This was in 2009, right after the crash of 2008, and that's bunk. It was his subprime mortgages that did that. Exactly, and it was bankers make, making loans because the government interfered and said, you've got to give loans to somebody whether they've got 
enough money to pay it back or well, not. Well, Greenspan actually gave a speech in 2005 where he said that through technology, he found a way to give mortgages to people who otherwise wouldn't qualify, okay? Mm-hmm. So it lands right on Greenspan's shoulders. And Newsweek magazine did a great article, and they pointed to Greenspan and one other who engineered the whole damn thing. And then he has the chutzpah, as we say in Brooklyn, to, to blame it on, on something totally different. And don't you love the term vacant American? It was a vacant housing units. You know, I, I see the Norman Rockwell painting on the mantelpiece of a vacant housing unit. My goodness. But that's just irritating. Now, this is downright infuriating. The second bonus. The second bonus would address the increasing concentration of income in this country. In other words, folks, someone's getting too much money. But I promise you, he's not talking about himself or Gates or any of the other bankers, okay? The second bonus would address the increasing concentration of income in this country. Greatly expanding our quotas for the highly skilled would lower the wage premiums of the skilled over the lesser skilled. Skill shortages in America exist because we're shielding our skilled labor force from world competition. Quotas have been substituted for the wage pricing mechanism, and in the process— Hey, you're going to love this one, folks. We have created a privileged elite. We're talking about middle-class workers that he calls the privileged elite whose incomes are being supported at non-competitively high levels by immigration quotas on skilled professionals. Eliminating such restrictions would reduce at least some of our income inequality. The immigration laws are designed to shield American workers from foreign competition. And when they talk about how we need to modernize the immigration system, what they're saying is we should be able to fire every American and replace them with third world workers. That is the ultimate goal. Mike, what what they're doing? It's communism. Yep, it's Plain communism. And simple. Yes. Plain and simple. It's communism because yes. what they want to do is government determine how much you get, and it's going to be equal. Uh, as you said earlier, uh, if you're a brain surgeon, you might get the same as uh, somebody flipping burgers under their system. Yep. And Except all that, those they'll engineer and, it, so they'll they'll still live in the big fancy oh, mansions, yeah. and we'll be living in miniature apartments, right? Exactly, we'll be living in two hundred square feet, and eating they'll insects, be living eating in ten thousand square feet, right? Yeah. Eating insects while they're having filet mignon in their mansions. Exactly. Uh, It's astonishing. Bill Gates says that he has every right to fly around the world in his private jet because the work he's doing to save the world is so important that, you know, he has no choice. Yeah, right. Sure thing. (laughs) We had the same thing with Michael Bloomberg when they said when he was his his people at a news conference were asked, uh, you know, his carbon footprint is, is like, you know, 20 times bigger than the average American. Oh, he does good work. That was the answer. So no, I, I guess the pediatric, I, I guess the pediatric nurse, neurosurgeon who saves babies' lives for free is doing good work. Uh, does he does he get a pass on the environment? Also, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. This is all elitism. It's all nonsense, and the American people have been played for fools. And now you're looking at that border, and you know the Democrats love the word sustainability. And we know that there's a water shortage, okay? I mean, yes, they've been flooding and the snow is melting and so forth. But long term, in fact, the president just signed an executive order determining how much water could be diverted to which state for what purpose and so on and so forth. So there's a water shortage. There's a record drought. 
So in the middle of a record drought, they bring in, and I think it's a higher number, but let's say 5 million. Let's just say. I did a little digging around on the internet. The average human being requires roughly 100 gallons of water each and every day, seven days a week. Why? Well, for sanitary reasons, flushing toilets, taking showers, cooking, and drinking, 100 gallons of water per day. If that's roughly right, and you're talking 5 million people, you know what that means? Every day, think of this, folks, 500 million gallons of water are being consumed by people who should not be here. Has anyone on the Republican side made that case? No. Why? Because they're really all in. They're happy with what they're doing because it's an opportunity for them to pump, you know, to, to thump the podium, use it as a fundraiser, and make speeches and get a photo op. If they were serious, they would talk about all the ways that aliens can enter the United States. If they were serious, they would talk about the dangers that all of this has created because interior enforcement has been destroyed. In fact, when, uh, and I started mentioning Citizenship and Immigration Services, when Mayorkas ran citizenship for Obama, he ordered that they basically approve every application for every visa, no matter what, even when the FBI went to him and said that there were treaty investor visas, EB-5 visas, that related to an Iranian company that had a possible tie to Hezbollah and terrorists. He said, I don't care. We're approving everything. And they approved all these visas. The Office of Inspector General did a report. It was a scathing report, found him guilty of malfeasance. And when the Republicans raised the issue during his confirmation hearing to head up DHS, the Democrats said, we don't care. He's our guy. So here's a guy that approved visas for terrorists or possible terrorists, also approved visas for a company that, according to ABC News, had a link to Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. The level of corruption is inestimable. We saw that now with the $4 billion in this omnibus spending bill to deal with the border, not to secure the border, but to give the money to the so-called NGOs, non-government organizations, that they laughably refer to as non-profits. You got to love non-profits. They get contracts for hundreds of millions of dollars. Are, are they embezzling the money? How are you a nonprofit if you're getting hundreds of millions of dollars? I, I just find all of this very remarkable. And, and, so, and their and their their uh, top officers, their CEOs are making uh, a six figure, high six figure or seven figure incomes, yep. and they're a nonprofit. Well, that's right. And 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 so what's really remarkable? Let me see if I could, if I could pull this up real quickly. I did an article for Front Page, and for your audience, I hope they'll go to Front Page magazine after the show and check out my articles. Mm -hmm. But what was really incredible is there was a report, um, First Judicial Watch did, did a whole report about all of this. And let me just see if we have it. Um, Mike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt at this point, but... One of the reasons I enjoy having you on the program, there could not be two people uh, from uh, much different backgrounds. Now, right. I was a very humble background as well, but you were raised in New York City. Yep. Uh, you were raised, uh, you're, you're Jewish. Yep. Um, you were raised by um, uh, parents who came here as, as 
legal immigrants. Okay? Well, my dad was born here, but his family and his siblings came from Russia legally. Okay, yep. okay, fair enough. Anyway, I come from rural Montana. I am very much a conservative. I'm a constitutional conservative. Uh -huh. uh, my father was a communist, uh, but he died when I was only seven years old. So oh, I didn't, sorry. That's terrible. Well, it happens. Uh, I didn't have the opportunity to uh, uh, get fully indoctrinated. My mother uh, died when I was 16. Um, and so I... But By the way, to interrupt just for one second... That goes back to the clothesline, right? You look at your clothesline, yeah, yeah. right? Was my well, dad but not right? The thing right? is, I can tell you, Mike, I can't be, I could not be more grateful for my life because I learned lessons. I started working when I was eight years old as a shoeshine boy because uh -huh. my mother couldn't afford, uh, she had no income, uh, uh -huh. she couldn't afford. Uh, so to buy clothes and to take care of what I needed for, for things, I went out and tried shoes. By the time I was uh, 10 years old, just before my 11th birthday, I had $500 in the bank, and that was by shining shoes for 10 cents a pair yep. or boots for 15 cents. Now, I got a lot of tips. I didn't, you know, make that amount on every shine because I was a good kid. I went yep. back and forth in a little town in Montana. Uh, after school, I'd shine shoes, and on uh, Saturdays, I'd go out and I'd hit all the bars. I'd hit all the the uh, local businesses and stuff, and I, I took care of myself. I grew up very similar to you because I learned at a very early that if I didn't take care of myself, nobody was going to do it for me. Yep. And I was a little kid. I was a scrawny little kid, and I got the crap beat out of me. And so, my mother again, told me, look, at, look at the similarities. Huh? I know. My mother told me, she said, Danny, if you don't take care of yourself, yep. nobody's going to do it for you. The next time somebody punches you, you punch back. Yep. You better learn that because it'll never get any better. And that's exactly, and I'm same thing. I, uh, I, when they, uh, when they started punching me and it only took about two times and they quit doing that because I, they learned that I was going to kick the crap out of them if they yep. kept doing. It. These are, these are life so, lessons. If you can't deal with schoolyard bullies, you can't deal with life. Exactly. And now they're trying to end all bullying in schools and all this other touchy feeling. No, they don't crap. want it to it's be all... independent. The, the whole goal exactly. is to make you reliant on someone else to fight your battles. Exactly. You depend on the government. You depend on everybody to do everything for you. Life is a tough experience. And I tell you, Mike, my life has been so blessed. I live so well, but I, I live this well because I learned at an early age how to do it for yep. myself. And thank God I lived in the United States of America where nothing held you back as long as you were willing to take the risks and you were willing to do what was necessary to take care of yourself. Now, that's a reason I enjoy having you on as a friend as well yes. as, and there are things we don't agree on. I know that. And that's our that's our right and our privilege as Americans. Ex exactly. But that's why you're such a good friend, because I can talk to you honestly and you understand yep. just like I understand what you're saying. Yep. 
And, and you see, I've traveled, I've been blessed to travel all over the country. I did expert witness testimony in Hawaii. I've been to Seattle. I've been to Arizona. I've been to Texas and Alabama and you name it. I've been, and you know what I find when you sit down and have dinner with folks? There is far more that makes us similar than makes us different. Exactly. And the enemies of America want to emphasize the difference. We need to focus on similarities. And if you ask the average American what their dreams are for their children and their grandchildren, they're going to be very similar. We want them to grow up in a safe environment. We want them to be able to live a life that's fulfilling, that provides them with hopefully success and joy. Um, and, and that's what we want for our kids and our grandchildren. That's what my parents wanted for me. They said, we didn't go to college. They didn't go to high school. They made sure I went to college. Tragically, they died before I got my degree. So it made graduation day a tough day on so many levels. But I stand on their shoulders. It's about parenting. And now we're, we're, we're raising children where, or they want to raise children, where they won't go to the parents about sex change operations, but the parent is going to have to sign a note if they're going to go to a ball game. Are you mm -hmm. serious? They want to pry that relationship apart. Uh, by the way, uh, and just to make a, another point, but I, I want to just finish one thing, though, about interior enforcement, because this is really important. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. sure your audience understands this. One of the things that the 9-11 Commission warned about, and and, and the staff report did, and, and then I, I, I want to talk just for a moment about, about gun violence and all the other crazy nonsense, because they keep saying it's all about mental illness. What they're doing with these kids with sex change and, and, and the way that they're being taught, I believe, is increasing mental illness and insecurity and so forth. And then the drugs are doing uh, another number on us. Uh, you know, when are Amer when is the American government going to stand up for the average American, which is what you would think they should be doing? By the way, you know, George Washington had no use for political parties. In his farewell address, this is what George Washington had to say. It's at at, uh, at um, I'm trying to remember the name of the restaurant. That's in, it's in Lower Manhattan. But but this is what he said. This is Washington. However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. George Washington, mm -hmm. farewell address, September 17th, 1790. Six. So it's kind of interesting. But what we're witnessing, and this is why I'd love to know why the Republicans aren't talking about the need for interior enforcement, because interior enforcement is about going after immigration fraud. It's about going after crooked employers. It's about going after crooked lawyers. It's about going after the human trafficking operations. I did all those investigations as an agent. That's why they wanted me before Congress. I got contacted by the 9-11 Commission because my first fraud investigation way back in 76, my first year, supposed to be a nothing case. What do you give a new kid on the block? Turned into, I uncovered a terror plot in Israel to blow up an Israeli oil refiner. We wound up preventing the attack. And as you might imagine, I had a wonderful relationship uh, with the Israeli National Police for the next 25 years. So mm -hmm. it, it, it really showed me the nexus. And I spent half my career with the drug task force. And, and you have mass carnage, and we're giving people lawful status, and we're allowing them to float around the country. Uh, in fact, here's one statement. This is, again, from the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. Once terrorists had entered the United States, their next challenge was to find a way to remain here. 
Their primary method was immigration fraud. That's what the agents of ICE do, not the Border Patrol. That's not their responsibility. Theirs is interdiction, period. Secure the border, right? For example, Yusuf and Ajaj concocted bogus political asylum stories when they arrived in the United States. Mahmoud Abu Alim, involved in both the World Trade Center and landmark plots, received temporary residence under the seasonal agriculture worker program after falsely claiming that he picked beans in Florida. Mohammed Salome, who rented the truck used in the bombing, overstayed his tourist visa. He then applied for permanent residency under the agriculture worker program, but was rejected. Iyad Mahmoud Ishmael, who drove the van containing the bomb, this is the 93 bombing, took English language classes at Wichita State University in Kansas on a student visa. After he dropped out, he remained in status, remained in the United States out of status. So you have an illegal alien renting the truck that's used in the bombing, another illegal alien driving the truck, and we're giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens all over the country now. Think about that. And, and they even made the point that abuse of the immigration system and a lack of interior immigration enforcement were unwittingly working together to support terrorist activity. This is that staff report. And what are we doing about interior enforcement? Nothing. We have sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, driver's licenses for people who can't prove who they are, but we put up barriers against car bombs and truck bombs, right? And, and, and finally, they said... This, if I can find it, darn it, I had it. Once in a while, my computer can give me a fit. I'm sorry about that. Well, we all have. Um, but but the, the bottom line that they had made um, was that the, the terrorists, in getting immigration benefits, were able to hide in plain sight and put together a, a terrorist attack. And so you you look at what they have now done, Oh, here it is. This is this is the paragraph I wanted to read to your audience. This is on page 98 of that report. Terrorists in the 1990s, as well as the September 11th hijackers, needed to find a way to stay in or embed themselves in the United States if their operational plans were to come to fruition. As already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen, achieving temporary worker status, that's DACA, by the way, or applying for asylum after entering. Now, understand something. They're giving millions of people the opportunity to file for political asylum. They will not qualify. I jokingly have said that to call these people asylum applicants, which gives them this you know, aura of legitimacy, it's all baloney, is like saying that a homeless person who buys a lottery ticket is an aspiring millionaire, okay? <laughs> they will not, how's that work? Oh, I love it. So, but this gives them this this legitimacy, and people hear the word asylum, and and again, we're very sympathetic, compassionate people, but in reality, they've overwhelmed that system that's been used by terrorists repeatedly. Do you know that the wait now for a hearing by for an alien applying for asylum is ten years? Ten years. They are untouchable for ten years. Now, as I say this to you, I want to finish that paragraph. So they say this. In many cases, the act of filing for an immigration benefit sufficed to permit the alien to remain in the country until the petition was adjudicated. In New York, that's 10 years, folks. Terrorists, terrorists were free to conduct surveillance, coordinate operations, obtain and receive funding, go to school and learn English, make contacts in the United States, acquire necessary materials and execute an attack. And now we're being told by our military that within ten, within six months, ISIS will be in the position to carry out international terror attacks. Mm -hmm. So if you connect the dots, 
And you also recognize that we have had translators working for the military in Afghanistan who were found to be involved with ISIS, mm -hmm. connected to ISIS. So they are the ones helping interview people looking to enter the United States. The, 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 there was a report issued about three months ago. The FBI was granted something on the order of $15 million in emergency funding to look for the Afghanis, and there's thousands of them, that were inappropriately admitted into the United States when Afghanistan unraveled literally overnight. So we now have thousands of potential terrorists all over the country. The FBI is running around in circles, scrambling to figure out where they are and what they might be up to. And every day we flood America with tens of thousands of more people and again, it just took 19 terrorists to carry out 9-11. And I'd love to know why nobody in the media or no one on the Republican side doesn't hold a news conference and make the points that I'm making. This isn't Mike Cutler being paranoid or anti-immigrant. The most likely victims of transnational criminals are the members of the ethnic immigrant community. Look at the shooting, by the way, in Texas just a couple days ago. The guy that did the shooting was previously deported. I, I read two different accounts, either four times or five times. I'm sure he's back in Mexico because they have an escape hatch they can escape through. And who did he kill? People from Honduras. Okay? I keep making the point. There's nothing anti-immigrant about keeping criminal aliens out of the United States. Think of the person who comes here from another country. They wait years. They do everything right. They want to get away from the crime. They want to get away from the violence. They want to get away from the poverty. They want to get away from the corruption. And no sooner do they get here than they find out that the same criminals that scared the hell out of them back home have joined them in our country because we refuse to do our job to protect America and Americans and our country against people who have no right to be here. And they're paying the price for all this nonsense. And the other side will say, well, you're anti-immigrant, and that's baloney. We admit more than a million lawful immigrants every year. Think about that. That's more than the rest of the world combined. We naturalize hundreds of thousands of new citizens, more than the rest of the world combined. And if you dare suggest that enough is enough, you know, if you go to a restaurant, they always have a certificate telling you that the fire department has decreed that X number of people is the maximum number. You can't overload it. You can't overload an airplane. You can't. There's limits. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you dare suggest that we keep out people because we're overwhelmed. In fact, I said I used to say that what Biden was doing could be called the um, Terrorist Assistance and Facilitation Act. I've given it another new name. It, only, it has a second name, Comprehensive Reform, the Overwhelm America Act, mm -hmm. the impact on the educational system, on infrastructure, on electricity, on hospitals and schools and transportation. We're overwhelmed. And this is not sustainable. And I'd love to know why no one ever asks anybody at the White House, how is this in the best interests of the average American citizen? Isn't that a fair question, Dan? Well, the thing is, a lot of people are asking that question, but they're not doing it in the right way. And I have to tell you, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Did you see, there was a, uh, this has been years ago, there was a MIT professor who uh, did a, a program where he had jars of marbles on stage and he would take marbles and put in the jars and he was talking about immigration. 
And Roy did that also at Numbers USA. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And and what a, a brilliant uh, demonstration that was. Because you're right, our whole system is being overwhelmed, but it's not because it's a mistake. It's because that's what they want. This is failure by design. This is absolutely failure by design. Did I lose you? Can you hear me okay? Ben, can you hear me? I'm, uh, you look frozen on my screen. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah, Michael, this is something. Uh, looks like we did uh, uh, lose Dan there for a second. He may have to uh, re enter Zoom. Okay. All right, um, I'll stand by. By the way, great. I've uh, been listening. Uh, love it. Thank you. <laughs> love your stuff. Well, you know, as I said, we, we, we're entitled to agree and disagree, and that's what Americans should be about, having discourse and conversation. Um, it, it's tragic that today we've become warring camps, and you watch one news program or the other, and, you know, the truth is supposed to be the truth, right? The facts oh, are the facts. Absolutely. And, uh, well, it's a, it's it's the age-old, you know, we've said it a thousand times, we've said it once. Divide and conquer. Well, that's exactly what's uh, what's happening here. It looks like we have Dan back. So yeah, I I have to apologize, guys. Um, I I my uh, my internet service here really sucks. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be back going back to Montana in a week and a half. We'll get back to having decent internet service. It's ridiculous. I live in a ranch out uh, on the opposite side of the world, practically from so-called civilization and my internet service out there is 10 times better than it is in Tucson. That's sad, but anyway, it's good to join you. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Dan. And uh, it, it's good that we, we just the two of us today. So it gave me time to, to get into some of the other issues. I, I, I just wanted to make one point because I'm watching this whole thing about firearms and all this other insanity. Mm-hmm. Most of the politicians that want to give illegal aliens driver's licenses also want to take away firearms from American citizens. Absolutely. And, and cars are weapons. And in fact, I did a little bit of research, and this is an interesting number for you. If I remember it correctly, I don't have the material in front of me. Uh, a couple of years ago, according to Johns Hopkins, and I consider them pretty authoritative, something on the order of 45,000 people died because of car accidents. During that same period, about 47,000 died because of firearm-related incidents. That, those were their stats. Mm -hmm. So pretty equal. Now, mm -hmm. what I find remarkable is nobody ever calls for car control, but they do call for gun control. Well, they're doing that now, though, Mike. They're... they're uh... They're they're doing it by uh, their so-called green policies because nobody no, 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 will be I'm able aware, to drive but you anything. Understand, right? But but that's <laughs> my point. And when there's a terrible crash, right? Some guy plows into a school bus and three kids are killed and the teacher loses a limb. The first thing that the report will address is whether or not the guy was drunk or driving driving under the influence. We almost never hear about someone being under the influence when they use a firearm. Although this this Texas shooting, they did say the guy was drunk, but generally that's never even discussed. All they'll say, well, this could be a case of mental illness, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is 
it could be that the guy that did that is hooked on drugs, working up a DEA for half my career, DEA and the FBI. I was with the drug task force. You would find people who were habitual drug users, and after a while, it does permanent damage to their brain. Okay, And what are we doing in America today? Nothing to stop the flood of fentanyl, nothing to discourage its use. There's wonderful commercials on television warning people about using um, cigarettes, right? Or or whatever. Not a commercial that I've seen warning about narcotics or fentanyl. In fact, in New York, they will give advice in posters how to use illegal and dangerous deadly drugs safely. Really? Mm -hmm. You tell me what the benefit is. We're destroying the minds of our children. We're destroying our country from within so that America's enemies will have a cakewalk at at some point, God forbid, in the future. Mm -hmm. We should be discouraging this lunacy. And if you look at the level of violence, it starts in the family. It it starts with families and, and parents giving children a set of values and explaining to them the way things should be. And you have kids that go out, commit acts of violence, no punishment, no consequences. They've given video games that could be training simulators for combat soldiers. And they're left to their own devices, literally and figuratively, when they're 10, 12 years old. Nobody's supervising them. So they're watching movies that are increasingly violent. By the same Hollywood producers who scream about guns, but they make millions of dollars peddling movies that glorify extreme violence. Is there something I'm missing here? And, and, no. And, and we know that cars have always had a nexus to crime, car bombs, truck bombs, getaway cars. NASCAR started when you had the moonshiners trying to outrun the revenue agents, right? So anything can be used for good or ill, depending on the person and how they're using it. But we hear about gun control, nothing about cars, nothing about how firearms protect countries from tyranny. My mother-in-law from my first wife was in a concentration camp. I said, why in the world didn't our people do a better job of repelling the Nazis? And she was very big on guns. She hated guns. She said, well, they had guns and we didn't. I said, yes. And if you could make guns disappear, you would. I said, don't you understand that guns are a way of protecting against tyranny. Anybody who seeks high political office is suspect to me. Normal people don't want to run a country. They're happy to run a small business. They're happy to be a school teacher or a construction worker or an agent or a doctor. But it's a special mindset that puts people on a path to give them the power that they wield as the leader of a country. I mean, look at the damage Putin did killing civilians like it was going out of style. It's sociopathic to see this taking place. So understand that power in the hands of the wrong people is dangerous. And the only thing that the people have on their side is if they are able to have firearms. So that Mm -hmm. it's a a way of of, of holding tyrants in check, right? Exactly. The Nazis did was to disarm their population. Now, I'm not saying you need anti-aircraft guns on your roof. And we could talk about what's reasonable and not reasonable. And that's fine. There should be conversations. And we should have politicians who understand the issue. I think it was the idiot Barbara Boxer who said that the good thing about these the extended magazines is that once they're used up, they'll be off the street. 
you use up a magazine seriously i guess when her car runs out of gas she gets rid of the car and buys <laughs> she probably did she's not I, Michael, you know I'm, I'm a proponent if you if you want an a1 abrams uh and you can do the maintenance on it and buy the ammo you're, uh, go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, we, we can have that conversation, but, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Though. Oh, absolutely. As a matter uh, of fact, uh, Mike, what, what you're saying is uh, completely right because I'm a big Second Amendment uh, promoter too. And it's not about hunting, it's about protecting yourself from a tyrannical government. And if we ever had a need for firearms, Right now, I think is a damn good lesson on why. And incidentally, you mentioned fentanyl. A hundred thousand people have died a year for the last uh, three years from fentanyl abuse. Now, you tell me they don't put that out as a big deal. They don't no. say much about that, but every time there's a school shooting somewhere, they go nuts about it. So, so wait a moment. You're and, absolutely and, right. And I've had, shooters, we're, we're operating under the influence of a drug, number one. Number two, how many people were killed by drug addicts who committed a violent crime to get their hands on money to buy the drugs? How many people, exactly. how many people have been killed because somebody operating a motor vehicle under the influence killed people? We talk about drug violence. Um, look at the cartels. I, I, you know, we. And by the way, it was in New York where where El Chapo Guzman was prosecuted because he turned New York City into his hub for drug trafficking. I wrote about that for Front Page. I do a lot of writing. But I hope everyone will check out Front Page Magazine or my website, michaelcutler.net. Well, my radio show, The Michael Cutler Hour, Friday nights on Blog Talk Radio, 7 p.m. East Coast time. But I keep trying to make the point that we need to have a rational conversation as adults. You know, and the idea of keeping people from asking questions. My dad said to me that the only dumb question was the question I didn't ask. And, and, and you know, I'm Jewish and Jews answer a question with another question. So maybe I'm genetically predisposed to appreciate the value of a good question. <laughs> but when people tell you, don't question me, run for your life because something very evil is right. happening. That's right. Absolutely. And uh, incidentally, I've had uh, a lady on my program who has testified before Congress, too, uh, about the fact that psychotropic drugs are involved in virtually all of the school shootings up yeah. until a, a year or two ago, almost every one of them. The, the the people that were involved in that were on psychotropic drugs. Well, that goes back to the point that I was making. <clears throat> I mean, it's yeah. not rational to take a gun and start mowing people down. And, and, and again, these video games where you, you go oh, out there horrible. with lots of people, what are we doing? There's so many wonderful video games, car racing and flying. I, I, I flew some simulators. You know, I did a little single engine flying as a kid. Never got my license, but I did log 20 odd hours of solo time. Um, and I had a couple of astronauts actually say to me, you've earned the right to call yourself an aviator. Once you take off by yourself and you land, it's just like a guy does one space flight. He's always known as an astronaut. And what struck me was how humble they were. It's kind of funny to talk about astronauts being down to earth, but everyone that I've ever met was. And in fact, there's a gentleman by the name of Tom Garcia who started my radio show for me. And Tom is an American Airlines pilot, but in his prior life, he was actually a Top Gun instructor for the U.S. Navy. 
And Tom said the same thing to me. He said, once you do a solo flight, you earn the right for the rest of your life to call yourself an aviator. And he said, it puts you as part of a very small group of people who've had that opportunity to fly solo. And again, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of what I did, but I remember one morning by myself going up to 10,000 feet, I felt like an astronaut. It was right after it had snowed and Long Island was spread out beneath me, covered with this beautiful white snow, blue skies. Uh, it was an amazing experience. And the reason I tell you this is you look at all the egos that are out there, but generally when you meet men and women of the armed forces, you meet our astronauts and those folks, boy, oh boy, uh, they don't come any better than that. I have such tremendous respect for America's first responders, America's military, our fellow Americans who go in harm's way on behalf of all of us. And you saw these idiot politicians calling out law enforcement. Final thought about that. Um, there are some bad actors in every profession. I don't care if they're doctors or teachers or whatever, right? Round pegs and square holes. But a couple of bad shootings and suddenly it's defund police and let's have mayhem. Do you know how many people, according to Johns Hopkins in 2018, died because of medical malpractice? <laughs> oh, I don't even want to hear. I know. Go ahead. You know what? No. Well, and, and, and they were optimistic because another university had a much bigger number, but Johns Hopkins came up with 250,000. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to know, has anybody called for defunding hospitals? Mm -hmm. We've got to be rational about stuff, folks. That's the bottom line. Look at stuff rationally. And, and you know, the solution to law enforcement, better screening, better training, better pay, perhaps, to attract people that are more qualified. And if and, someone, and here's something that I've said, and a lot of my friends who are in the, in the profession said, gee, I never heard of that, but it makes sense. Give law enforcement offices an early out if they are burned out because of post-traumatic stress. So if you have a city and you have a police officer that's having issues, perhaps you could find that police officer a job as a teacher or working in one of the other city departments so they can continue to build their pension. You thank them for their service to the community and you give them a graceful way off the job because perhaps they're overwhelmed by experiences they've had on the job. That we've got to look for creative solutions, not tearing down institutions, right. not right. Uh, this idea that we're going to, um, uh, you know, dismantle everything. We need to find constructive solutions to make things better, not do crazy stuff to destroy this incredible country that really surpasses any other country that this, our species has ever created in history. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, mine. And and incidentally, your comments about uh, law enforcement, um, for years they've been lowering the standards uh -huh. to allow minorities and other groups to come into law enforcement. Yep. And uh, guess what? When you lower the standards, if you do it long enough, you're going to end up screwing up the, the whole program. And that's exactly what has been happening. Well, what we need to do is quit doing things because of any predetermined uh, status quo or quo or quota or, or quota. quota. Well, so here's Ed, Ed Koch said something fair. great. Ed Koch, again, I'll quote Ed Koch. He said he was an old-time liberal. And so a, a reporter asked him, what does that mean? He said, well, 
you level the playing field, you do whatever you can so that everybody gets to play and then whoever wins, wins. And I agree with that. If it means providing free computers for children living in poverty, whatever you have to do, raise their educational levels, do whatever you can to build them up, give everybody an opportunity. But at the end of the day, I don't want to get on an airplane and be told that the guy flying the airplane isn't really all that great, but he met some kind of a quota somewhere along the way or go into exactly. surgery and find out that the guy who's about to take a scalpel uh, to my body is is there because they had a quota to fulfill. We want, and I believe that everyone, see, I don't, I don't see any difference in race or ethnicity. It's upbringing, opportunity, challenges, uh, and we all have different talents. You know, I, I couldn't do sports. We put a gun to my head, but I never lost a debate in college. So we all have different talents and different abilities. The trick to success and happiness is figure out what you're good at and try to make a living doing it, Okay. But exactly. you qualified people, you give them every possible incentive to encourage them to join those professions. We have a shortage of computer programmers, provide free training, right? We do it with the military. You, you want to be a pilot, they'll spend a million dollars turning you into the best pilot we've ever seen. And then after you do your hitch, you can go work for the airlines like my friend Tom Garcia, okay? So the idea is encourage Americans not foreign workers, Americans, to get mm -hmm. the education, acquire the skills, and then excel and become successful in their own country. Uh, isn't that what a country of the people, by the people, and for the people should be doing, Dan? Or am yeah, I absolutely. Well, Mike, Mike, and the thing is, you're right. Give them the opportunity. Provide the opportunity, but don't try to equal or level the playing field. No, we, we, we don't all have the same skill set. I mean, I mean, competition is a good thing. Yes. People need to understand that if you don't do it yourself because you've got motivation, yep. then you don't deserve it. Yep. It's that simple. Yep. And, and again, not everyone can be a, a pitcher or, or, or a runner or, or a neurosurgeon. I have friends who were surgeons. They say, Mike, I could never be an agent. They say, well, that's good. I could never be a surgeon. You know, we're all different and we should be celebrating right. those differences and accepting our limitations and seeing where we could best fit into society. Because, you know, I like to say that everybody has an instrument to play. America is a big orchestra and there's lots of instruments that should be played by Americans. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, I have to tell you, I, as I said earlier, that's one of the reasons that I enjoy your friendship so much is the fact that we are from a completely different backgrounds yep. to a point, but at the same time, we share the common understanding that what is best for America is what's best for Americans. And yep. we Absolutely. understand that freedom and opportunity are things that are inherently built into the American system that if that ends, we are screwed and we will no longer exist as a constitutional republic. And what a shame that will be for the world if that ever happens. Absolutely. And by the way, for those people that call themselves Antifa, the anti-fascists, the real anti-fascists stormed the beaches in Normandy. Uh, was shot down in the skies over Europe and Japan and so forth. The real anti-fascists were the U.S. military going after the fascists who wanted to end our freedoms. 
So when I hear this nonsense, we need to grow a spine, folks. We need to be able to stand up to those people that want to spew nonsense and explain to them, no sale, we're not buying the nonsense. Uh, it may take a little courage on our part, but we can do it. We have to be able to stand up. My father taught me an important lesson. He said, Mike, you will teach people how they can treat you by demonstrating what you're willing to accept. Think about that. Yeah, very, very, very well put. Now, Mike, we're almost out of time. Okay. Talk about some of the other programs. You mentioned them earlier, but uh, you, that you write and you do radio podcasts. You do yes, I do. Programs. Talk about all that. Sure. I, I, I have the Michael Cutler Hour. It's on Friday night, 7 o'clock East Coast time. And if you go to the Michael Cutler Hour, you can click on the podcasts. I used to do interviews and people said, Mike, with everything going on, just spend an hour at the end of the week rehashing the insanity. And there's never a shortage of material. So that's what I do with a particular emphasis, of course, on immigration related issues. Uh, I also write for Front Page Magazine, sponsored by the David Horowitz Freedom Center. My own website is michaelcutler.net. And uh, recently, I've been doing more uh, appearances over at Newsmax TV, which pleases me. It's about getting the word out, you know, I, I, and, I, and I'd love for you, if you read the articles or you listen to the podcast, share it with as many folks as you can be part of what I like to call my bucket brigade of truth. Uh, it's really important that we share our ideas and that we accept the notion that as Americans, there's far more that unites us than divides us. Exactly. And that's uh, that's what we're all about. We're not about uh, total consensus. We're about building truth. We're about building friendships like ours. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I value we it. We trust each other, and uh, we may not agree on everything, but we agree on the things that are important. And that's shared values. Do. Shared values. Shared values. Michael, thank you. You've been absolutely super. You always are. I, I see that uh, uh, Don and Tim and Barb are ready to go with you don't say. So, uh, gang, take it away from here. Michael, thank you again. And I want to thank our viewers and our listeners and join us again on Sunday for Connecting the Dots with Dan Apple. Thank you again. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to LA, where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say.
Cause there ain't no 